You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, the Snarlin' Sea Dog, Hangman Strain, John, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Vanderwood, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Keelhaw Chris, Carcos, Sean, Rotary Coast, M.D., Ghost 750X, Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstrap Spade. I'd also, li- I'd also like to welcome our new quartermasters, Evan, Brandon, The Gecko, Nathan, and Kevin, as well as our newest Commodores, and the Snarlin' Sea Dog. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Now we are to begin a history full of surprising turns and adventures. I mean that of Mary Reed and Anne Bonny. The odd incidents of their rambling lives are such that some may be tempted to think the whole story no better than a novel or romance. But since it is supported by so many thousands of witnesses... I mean the people of Jamaica, who were present at their trials and heard the stories of their lives, the truth of it can be no more contested than that there were such men in the world as Roberts or Blackbeard. This is episode 314, Odd Incidents of Rambling Lives. That passage I just read comes from A General History of the Robberies and Murders of the Most Notorious Pirates by Captain Charles Johnson. It's the opening paragraph of The Life of Mary Reed, and to catch us up to speed on Mary, I'd like to read another line from A General History. Johnson writes, quote, Her mother was obliged to put her daughter out to wait on a French lady as a footboy, now thirteen years of age. 
Here she did not live long, for, growing bold and strong, and having also a roving mind, she entered herself on a man-o'-war, where she served some time, then quitted it, went over to Flanders, and carried arms in a regiment of foot as a cadet. End quote. We don't have much about Mary Reed's service in the English army during the War of the Spanish Succession. We know a bit, we can infer more, but the details tend to be lacking. In her book Pirate Queens, Rebecca Simon discusses the life story of a Deborah Sampson. Deborah Sampson fought in the Continental Army during the War of the American Revolution. She served as a Massachusetts regular under the name Robert Shirtliff for 17 months, and she managed to hide the truth of her sex the entire time. It was a, a fever that outed her in the end. She was unconscious from the fever when the doctor treating her noticed you know, she was a woman. She was honorably discharged and actually treated pretty well by the army. Her commander ensured that she had enough money to get home and saw that she received full benefits for the rest of her life, you know, such as they were. She went on to get married and have kids and, you know, do all that normal life stuff. But a few years later, she was approached by a writer named Herman Mann. And Herman Mann is an objectively funny name to be writing about a woman posing as a man in the army. Herman Mann wrote her biography and even encouraged Sampson to go on a speaking tour where she told her pretty remarkable story. One of the big questions that she was asked everywhere she went was how she pulled it off. And the answers to these questions might just tell us a bit about how Mary Reed managed to pull it off herself. Some of that answer boils down to Deborah Sampson's physicality. She was tall, first of all, six foot tall, in a time when the average height in the army was 5'5". Five five. Mary Reed was not quite six feet tall, but about 5'7", five 5'8", five so still above average. In her biography, Herman Mann tells us that Samson's breasts were particularly small, but he also tells us that she would tie them down with a linen cloth to make sure that nobody noticed. We could assume something similar about Mary Reed, or, you know, someone probably would have taken notice. Her biographer also wrote that, quote, her waist might displease a coquette. You know, a coquette's like a flirt, oftentimes quite a bit more than a flirt. But he's saying there that she didn't have that kind of telltale hourglass figure that a coquette would have desired and would have seemed a bit odd in a soldier. As for her facial features, uh, a boy who grew up next door to Samson, when she was a grown woman by that point, but he described her as having, quote, plain features. We have a drawing of Samson taken for a magazine cover in 1797, and her facial features are, well, if we were talking about Charles II here, we'd call them, you know, bold. Now, we don't have any period-accurate depictions of Anne Bonny or Mary Reed. The woodcuts we have of them come from later, although they are based on descriptions taken for their trials. And none of those descriptions, of Mary Reed anyway, would make you think of words like feminine or soft or, you know, even pretty. Now, I'm not trying to insult Mary Reed. I'm a big fan, but... 
her appearance does kind of play a role in her story. A lot more than, say, you know, someone like Charles Vane. And for the record, I don't think anyone would call him pretty either. But Mary Reed managed to pull off the identity of a boy or a man for years. But I think, more than her physicality, you know, the eye sees what it expects to see a lot of times. And Mary Reed knew how to dress as a man. Especially when it comes to the army, it was easy in the army because everyone dressed pretty much the same. They had basically the same uniform, and soldiers in the English army circa 1700, really soldiers for most of history, wore clothes that were almost always a little too big for them. You know, it's not like the army of England was tailoring shirts and pants to you know form-fit every single soldier. Usually, they made one size of everything, for your average infantryman, anyway. Sometimes, maybe they'd have two sizes, a small and a large, but you were stuck with whatever you could fit into. And since they wanted to make sure that everybody could fit into everything, your clothes were too big. Even more than that, if you were a soldier on campaign, you probably lost weight while on campaign. You might go check out, uh... You know, if you've ever seen Ken Burns' The Civil War documentary, it has pictures of soldiers before they deployed, wearing their uniforms, usually, and they were all a bit ill-fitting and too large. But sometimes you'll see a picture of the same soldier in camp a few months later, and their clothes are often just kind of hanging off of them. It's pretty clear for most of these soldiers that if it weren't for their belts, their pants would fall off. In the English army of about 1700, they would have all been wearing boots. They would have had those big baggy trousers that would hang loose over your hips, so if you had hips to hide, they would help. They had loose-fitting linen shirts and a very bulky coat that would hide any curves you had, and to top it all off, literally, a big floppy hat. Mary Reed, wearing the same uniform as everyone else, wouldn't have looked out of place at all. Beyond that, you know, she didn't have any facial hair, but the army was in the business of employing, you know, 15-year-old boys regularly. If this Mark Reed seemed a bit shy when it came to things like bathing or, you know, taking a piss, well, he's just a kid. Can't blame him, can ya? It would have been fairly easy for an 18-year-old girl to pass for a slightly younger man while on the march. But there were other concerns to take into consideration. For Deborah Sampson, for example, she got wounded in her service a couple of times, but one of those times was serious enough to require the aid of a doctor. She had a, a saber slash across her forehead that dug pretty deep. It was deep enough that it required stitches and a bandage. But on that same day, she took a musket ball in her upper thigh. I don't know how she did it, but somehow, Samson pulled off the hole in her trousers, the blood, and what was probably a fairly considerable limp to keep the doctor from treating the wound. Rebecca Simon points out that she would have had to remove the ball and patch herself up. 
Now, it's not impossible to imagine a situation where maybe the doctor was in on it, you know, a friendly face, or maybe someone else in camp knew her secret and agreed to help her. But it must have been a difficult situation. Now, I don't know that Mary Reed was ever wounded exactly. I also don't know that she wasn't, as we will see, but it would have been a constant concern. You know, aside from just getting wounded, that's bad enough, but revealing your secret, that would be pretty bad too. And it's not just getting wounded. We already mentioned some of the necessary biological functions that would have made things difficult. Bathing would have made things difficult, but what about when it gets hot? You know, if you're the one guy that won't jump into the river to bathe or always sneaks off pretty far when he has to take a pee, it might seem even weirder that you're the one guy that keeps his coat on when the weather gets really hot. And all of that might make you think that Mary Reed would have been seen as kind of a weirdo, you know. Mark's kind of an odd duck. And maybe that was the case to some of her comrades, but Mary Reed was a good soldier. In part, it's because, at least according to Charles Johnson, she didn't spend her time drinking and carousing with the other men. She was early to bed and early to rise. She kept all of her gear, her weapons and such, in tip-top shape. She was always ready to march. And with all of that, Mary Reed even managed to earn herself a pretty significant promotion. She transferred from the infantry, where she had served as a cadet, to the cavalry. That's a much, much more prestigious job. It comes with better pay, better hours, and most important to soldiers of all times, better food. Now, she would have had to have provided her own horse and to care for it. I assume that she must have saved up some money during her time in the Navy to afford a horse, but, I mean, well, look, taking care of livestock was a lot more prevalent in the early modern world than it is today, but Mary Reed was a city girl, and a poor one. She would not have had a lot of experience with horses. When she left the city, she joined the Navy. This horse she bought to join the cavalry may have been the first horse she ever rode. But she bought a horse, joined up, and apparently learned pretty well. She was keeping up with her column of horsemen like she was born in the saddle, an exemplary soldier. And what really strikes me about all of this is just how capable Mary Reed must have been. And I mean, yeah, I know, that kind of... Sounds like, what, you mean girls can play baseball? But think about it. You know, Blackbeard never served in the army. Henry Every never rode in the cavalry. I mean, imagine someone like Calico Jack on the march. He'd be the kind of stumbling, sweating, complaining soldier that everyone else just despises. But Mary Reed served as a sailor in the Navy. She was a cadet in the army and then joined the cavalry. All three of those branches have their own kind of discipline and especially expertise, and Mary Reed excelled at all of them. Well, she excelled in the infantry and the cavalry. We honestly don't know enough about her time in the navy to say that she excelled. But considering her later career choices, she must have been at least competent at sea when in the navy. The only kind of life that Mary Reed had not managed to master so far 
was the one that had her serving as a footboy for some fancy French lady. Laying out dresses, serving coffee and crumpets, that's not the life for a woman like Mary Reed. But killing people, that she could do. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. So let's take a look at why Mary was there, on the continent, doing that killing. Let's take a look at the Greater European War. We should remember, naturally, that at this very moment, the Great Northern War was raging in Poland and Denmark and Russia. To the southeast, the Ottomans were on the move, and they were about to create a ton of headaches for the Austrians. And I know it can be tempting when I say the Ottomans are on the move to picture turban-wearing, camel-riding, scimitar-wielding cavalry, but remember that these Ottoman soldiers were mostly Greek and Balkan. And while their guns weren't quite as good as what the Dutch were making, for example, they were still fine firearms. By this point, the War of the Spanish Succession had really become a, a world war. The Indian Ocean was heating up. There was a ton of fighting between French, Dutch, and English forces there. But the American War, Queen Anne's War, you know, the war in the Caribbean especially, well, that's about to explode. And we are going to be talking quite a bit more about Queen Anne's War. But the center of the conflict, as in most Western European wars dating back to, I guess, Caesar, was the Rhine River. There was fighting on the continent down south, between France and Italy and Savoy, but the biggest armies were all up in Flanders, and especially the Rhineland. And we all know about Flanders by this point, right? That region of the Spanish Netherlands, or modern-day Belgium, up to the north that was home to the Flemish people, mostly Protestant, Dutch-speaking people. To the south of that same region, the Spanish Netherlands slash modern-day Belgium, you'd find the Walloons, mostly Catholic and French-speaking. 
Now, this division between the Flemish and the Walloons could cause a lot of trouble in the Spanish Netherlands. Much later on, in about a century's time, when the French Revolutionary Army invaded the territory that would be Belgium, the Protestant Flemish largely supported the Enlightenment ideals of the French Revolution, and often the French Revolutionary Army. Even later than that, when Belgium becomes Belgium, there's going to be a lot of tension between King Leopold and the Flemish people. He saw them as secondary to his good Catholic population. And you might be thinking, why don't they just divide? Hand half over to France, the other half over to the Netherlands, and everything's hunky-dory, right? But this territory had been unified in one form or another for centuries by this point. And when the chips were really down, say when the Kaiser's German army invaded in 1914, the Flemish and the Walloons would put their differences aside and band together to defend their homeland. But that's not what happened in this war. The Spanish Netherlands were still the Spanish Netherlands, but of course, the cause of this entire war was the fact that Spain had been handed over to a French bourbon. The Flemish people, who had so much in common with the Dutch, did not want to live under a French bourbon ruler. When French armies moved in and relieved the Spanish soldiers that controlled their border forts, that was the last straw. Many of those Flemish people, soldiers and civilians, departed their homeland to create Flemish companies that would join up with the English and German and Dutch forces mobilizing on the continent. In most of the fighting in Flanders, it was those companies that were the, you know, the spearhead of every attack, and really they were fighting to take back their homes. You know, those fortress cities are where they lived, and they'd been taken over by the French. They were being, in a sense, liberated by the Flemish. On the other hand, the Walloons were more than happy to allow the French into their fortress cities, so in a very real sense, this is a proto-Belgic civil war. In the spring of 1704, that's the climate into which the Earl of Marlborough landed to take command, probably, almost certainly, with Mary Reed, a young cavalryman, under his command. Now, Marlborough moved incredibly quickly, and he did so in an unexpected direction. As soon as he arrived on the continent, Marlborough virtually abandoned the Low Countries. He took his force of about 30 to maybe as many as 40,000 soldiers and moved east, away from Flanders and away from the French army, away from the center of fighting for the past, you know, two, three years. This upset the Dutch and the Flemish, but it confounded the French. Marlborough massed his forces at Koblenz, at the confluence of the Moselle and the Rhine. The French commander, Marshal Villois, couldn't understand why he just left Flanders there for him to take at his leisure. You know, the Flemish were still there, and the Dutch, but without the English army there to help guard those fortresses... If he wanted to, he could just sweep into Bruges and Dunkirk, Ypres, Brussels. I mean, what kind of an idiot was this Marlborough guy? But then again, what's he up to with those thirty to 40,000 men? 
Marshal Villois wrote to King Louis, asking him for orders. You know, should he take his army and march into Flanders, or should he move to counter Marlborough? Louis's decision, with full hindsight, was not a great one. He ordered Villois to separate, to divide his army. Half were to stay there and garrison the border fortresses against the Netherlands. The other half were to move south, down the Rhine, into areas like uh, Alsace and Lorraine. The assumption here was that the English army would be moving south down the Rhine and swing west to invade France. Which is a, you know, reasonable assessment. That's what commanders invading France from Germany have done from time immemorial. You know, it may, with hindsight, seem like a foolish decision, but at the time, it was the prudent decision. Beyond that, he did order some of his troops up from the southern front, you know, Italy, Savoy, that region, so they could support Villois and his army. But Marlborough wasn't doing what they thought he was doing. He continued south down the Rhine, which, you know, that fits the bill, that's what they expected him to do, but then he reached the main river. And that's the moment. When he's at the confluence of the Maine and the Rhine, that's where he's going to have to give away his intentions. If he were doing what the French thought he was doing, he would have crossed the Rhine and continued south. But he didn't. He crossed the Maine. Instead of invading French territory, heading to places like Alsace, he was moving into Germany. And reports had it that he was continuing southeast, deeper into German territory. When news of this reached Villois, he realized what Marlborough was up to, but he also realized he'd made a mistake. They weren't going for Alsace, they were going for another territory entirely. And he and his French forces were going to have to rush if they were going to counter him in any way. The English force continued south, into the region between the cities of Mannheim and Heidelberg. There, they met up with the Prussian and Hanoverian armies. Remember the two German armies that were most closely allied to the maritime powers. His intentions at this point were clear to everyone. He was going to march through the territory of Baden-Württemberg and into the territory of Bavaria. Now, you may not remember this, but the Duchy of Bavaria was currently in open rebellion against the Holy Roman Emperor Leopold I. The Duke of Bavaria thought that he would make a much better Holy Roman Emperor. He would not let the English and Dutch march all over him like Leopold did, his alliance with France would see to that. This rebellion from the Bavarians was tying up Austrian resources that at this moment were really needed down to the southeast. They needed to counter the Ottomans down there. But it was also interfering with the movement of German troops, the Prussians and Hanoverians, and as we're about to see, the Württembergians. But they were all needed in a place like Alsace where France thought Marlborough was going. Currently, they were busy fighting the enemy in their midst in Bavaria. If Marlborough were to, and you know, I'm tempted to use a word like liberate, but let's be honest here, if he were to conquer Bavaria, it would be a major coup in the war. The Holy Roman Empire would be free to fight in the east against the Ottomans and the west against the French. 
And given the state of the war in general, there is a couple of big things that happened in the last few months. Portugal and Savoy, who had both been allied to Spain and France, switched sides. They just decided, you know, I think our better option are the English and the Dutch. Apparently all of those naval maneuvers off the coast of Spain convinced King Pedro II. So two of the largest supporting powers in this war just switched sides. Now, Bavaria wasn't going to switch sides, not willingly anyway. But if Marlborough could crush the Duke's forces... Well, I don't want to say that the war would be decided. You know, that's going too far. The war is about to go on for another 11 years. France and Spain were giant imperial powers with amazing amounts of wealth and manpower they could call upon at any time. But it would definitely put the Franco-Spanish alliance on the back foot. They would be on the defensive in this war. Now, I had originally planned to do an entire episode talking about this campaign of Marlborough's. I mean, it really is a big deal. It's an impressive campaign, and it honestly it changes the trajectory of the war and know, the world. But I'm not going to do that. I know that there are some of you out there whose eyes just glazed over when I'm talking about, oh, he's marching through Württemberg, is he? You know, snooze fest, right? And I'd love to talk about all of the minutiae of this campaign, talk about every little conflict surrounding every little town between the French and the Dutch, fighting in the streets, it's good stuff, but it can get pretty monotonous. Instead, what I'll say about this campaign, this march through Germany, is that Marlborough was an... Well, he was the kind of commander that could get his army to move incredibly quickly. Honestly, he could get his army to move faster than almost anyone in recent memory. You know, some of the greatest military commanders all throughout history have shared this single trait. Your Napoleons, your Caesars... They were known for being fast. Now, there are other types. You know, you've got your Frederick the Great types who are a bit more methodical in their approach. For them, it's all about building and, this is important, reliably supplying armies that were juggernauts. You know, the kind of force that can't be broken and can't be stopped. That has its own power, but a fast army. Well, You know, they get their firstest with the mostest. It's a huge advantage for any fighting force, and Marlborough was great at it. Unfortunately, his allies, the Germans here, Hanoverians, Prussians, those from Baden-Württemberg, they were less good at it. And it's not because they're lazy. You know, I don't think anybody's ever accused the Germans of that. It's because of their guns. They still had these old-fashioned, huge, heavy, lumbering cannon. The more modern Dutch guns, which the English used, were much easier to move, much faster. Problem is, Marlborough didn't have many of them. He had left those guns in Flanders, where they were needed. The reason that these German troops were here were mostly to bring the guns that they had nearby, The English troops could, you know, hold the field, but artillery was the German job, and they just could not get to the battlefield in time. 
it was becoming a serious problem. Marlborough would get where he needed to be, and he'd have to wait like a couple, three days for the Germans to arrive with the guns. And to their credit, you know, the regular German troops, your infantry, your cavalry, they were moving quickly too. But those guns were always lagging behind. There were two or three opportunities for a really decisive battle where Marlborough could have crushed the French. I mean, he had him in his claws, but... Without the guns to do so, he was toothless. The army, though, eventually reached the Danube River, which, at this point in time, especially during the war, was essentially the northern border of Bavaria. Now, I've mentioned the Württembergian troops a couple of times here. It was actually when talking about the troops from Baden-Württemberg that I realized this isn't a topic I want to cover here on the show. Because it got real weird, talking about how the Duke of Baden-Württemberg really isn't the Duke of Baden-Württemberg, because Baden had its own prince-elector, but the Duke of Württemberg was the commander-in-chief of their armies. Then, of course, there's the city-state of Stuttgart, which had their own kind of like city council thing going on, but their troops also were under the command of Baden-Württemberg, and I mean, that's just a taste. It got terrible. The point is, all of that brushed aside... Prussia, Hanover, Baden, Württemberg, and the English all brought armies to the table. In total, they numbered about 60,000 men on the Danube. The French had just a little bit over half of that that could currently come into contact with Marlborough. The Bavarians had more, but not many more. Each side was outnumbered by the allied Anglo-German forces. However, the French and Bavarians together outnumbered the English-German forces. What Marlborough needed here was a safe place to cross the Danube into Bavaria and then a city that he could establish as his, you know, forward operating base, a defensible position where he could supply his army. And there were some military moves going on where, you know, Marlborough would make a move, but the Duke of Bavaria would counter him. This went on for a couple of months, but... In the end, Marlborough found a place where he could cross to the fortress city of Schellenberg, a hilltop fortress just across the Rhine. And here, Villois made a pretty big tactical mistake. And I don't like saying those words, because, you know, again, at the time, it seemed like the right decision. With hindsight, though, not a great move. He attempted to interfere with the crossing. And, you know... Uh, an army crossing a river is at a tactical disadvantage, so if you're going to move, that's the time. But his force was so much smaller than what the Germans alone had at the crossing near Schellenberg. And at this point, all of their guns were there, waiting to make the crossing. When he attacked, he didn't just get his nose bloodied, he got his nose broken. I mean, the French took serious losses trying to charge those entrenched German positions. But, with the Germans defending the rear, the English had to make the crossing and take that fortress at Schellenberg on their own. And they did it, but it proved to be a pretty bloody business. The English lost a ton of men in the fighting. Not Mary Reed, naturally, but thousands of others died in that single day. Now, Mary Reed's timetable gets a bit weird here. See, she was in the English army, 
but she's got to be back in Flanders pretty soon. The English are going to stick around in Bavaria for a while now, but Mary Reed is not. So if she were in fact here on this march through Germany, it's quite likely that she was injured taking the fortress city of Schellenberg. You know, not lost a leg kind of injured, but bad enough that she, along with many thousands of others, would have been sent back to Flanders to help garrison the fortresses there. So that's what I'm going to work with. Mary Reed, I'm assuming, was on this march through Germany, got wounded, and headed back to Flanders, where the Flemish and Dutch troops were waiting. Meanwhile, though, the Earl of Marlborough was taking a serious beating in the English press. James Faulkner writes in The War of the Spanish Succession, quote, Marlborough was heavily criticized for the losses sustained. What was the sense of capturing a hill in the heart of Germany at such a heavy loss? One of his critics in London asked. Were there not many such hills? Despite such comments and reservations, he continues, the Duke could now move across the Danube and interpose the Allied army between the French and Bavarians and the Emperor in Vienna. In so doing, he achieved the principal aim of his whole campaign. End quote. You know, Napoleon Bonaparte loved the great men of the ancient world like Caesar and Alexander the Great, famously. But what's less often talked about was his respect, his admiration, for the Duke of Marlborough. Still an earl, in our timeline, but about to be made a duke. And it seems that Napoleon took some inspiration from what Marlborough did here, interposing himself between his enemies. That's a move that Napoleon dubbed the strategy of the central position. You thrust your way into the center of an allied force, separating their armies, and pick off one and then the other. It won Napoleon a ton of his early battles. Of course, Napoleon may have done better to learn from another great commander active here at the same time, Charles Twelfth of Sweden. Charles Twelfth, who was, let me see, in about a year and a half, about to invade Russia and lose everything. Neither here nor there, but that would have been a good lesson for him to learn. This taking of the fortress city of Schellenberg, though, it was by no means the end of the war in Germany. It was really only the beginning. But having completed his primary goal... Marlborough and the people who would take over the army after he left it are going to have a position that's going to be difficult to take from them. It's a good point for us to leave behind the fighting on the continent, because from here on out it really does just become a long, hard slog. The French are going to do amazing things along with their Spanish allies, but never again in this war are they really going to take the initiative back. From the Allied forces. Next time in the life of Mary Reed, Venus is going to fight Mars. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, 
everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show, you all make it possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like Ben Franklin's World, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you'd like to check them out, well, unfortunately, the website that I've been telling you to visit for a few years now is no longer up. However, there are still plenty of good options to check out their music. YouTube, Bandcamp, Spotify, wherever fine songs are found. And I urge you to do so, because it's great stuff. Whenever you're done, you can go on over to our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.